Welcome home. You're here. Take a load off. Welcome to Three Crosses. We're delighted to have you with us today as we start a new series called Explore God. On a show of hands, how, how many of you have ever been in a season in life where you were exploring God? Is this thing true? Is it real? Maybe we're still exploring God at some level. We'll never get to the depths of exploration in our relationship with God. And yet in this series, the intent that we have is to tackle some of the deeper, harder questions that folks in our culture have when it comes to the exploration of God, right? Is God real at all? Today we talk about is faith necessary in the era of science, right? What do we do with the scriptures? Are they believable? What do we do about the scary parts of the scriptures? What do we do about the way Christians live in the world? Is that a, a reason to not believe in God at all? These are the questions that we'll be tackling between now and Thanksgiving alongside dozens of other churches here in the Bay. There's an organization, if you remember Pat Gelsinger, who was here a few weeks ago. Pat leads an organization called Transforming the Bay with Christ. And one of the initiatives of Transforming the Bay was to call as many churches in the Bay Area together who wanted to take part and say, hey, what if we all went through a series together and tackled some of life's toughest questions as a collective of churches throughout the Bay? And so if you're like, I don't like this series, I'm going to the church down the street. Sorry, they're probably going through this series too. Along with the series, we've got a couple things we'd love to, to put in front of you. One is on your outline today. If you didn't get one, you can get one on the way out or in the Three Crosses app. We'll try to give you some resources that you can read if these topics interest you. So Frank Turek's book with Norm Geisler uh, on there is one that I relied heavily on for this talk today. There's another book on there as well, which is fantastic. Uh, we've also got Wednesday nights. I see some of you who were here Wednesday night for community night. It was fantastic. And some of you, the class you chose to come to was in this room for our Explore God class. And every Wednesday night, we are going to be interviewing a panel of people and talking about some of these questions. How do you wrestle with God and science, right, as a, a scientist this week? We'll talk to some folks about that. So come on out if you haven't come yet. You can jump in anytime. Wednesday night, we have dinner at 5.30. Class starts at 6.30 right here. And we've got classes happening all over campus on Wednesday night for every age. I saw the grandparents' class this week was hopping. So, yeah, grandparents, good job. So you guys... And they're packed out in that room. I think we need to swap rooms, man. You are packed out up in D1. So check out the classes that's coming up. We'd love to walk with you through this series. If you can't make it Wednesday night or if you're going to a different class, our Three Crosses podcast throughout this series will be the recording of the conversations that we have. So you can catch up that way. But it's been really fun to connect face-to-face -face in community. Wow. A couple things for you before we dive in. I want to celebrate anyone who's here that normally comes at 11. Any people make the journey from 11 to 9? Yes, thank you for doing that. We are in this series, we're about three weeks away from launching Back to Church October, where we're going to be inviting people to come up who haven't been to church in a long, long time. Last year, we saw just a ton of new folks coming, and we're anticipating if God does that same thing again, we're not going to have room for them unless we make some room by coming a couple hours earlier. So thanks for coming at 9. If you ever need to come at 11, we'd also invite you to park at the parking lot at the bottom of the hill, the Stanford lot, and that would be a great help to us if you could do that. And, uh, and like Sierra said in the video, if you came prepared to give today, we'd be happy to facilitate that. We've been celebrating this year and humbled at the generosity of God's people. 
You know, our church, I don't know if you know this, but just looking around, the last two years, we've grown 50% and 50 more percent. And so we've just been keep going all in on reaching our community, equipping people, preaching the gospel, and our church has grown a ton. And yet, the beautiful, yes, that's beautiful. We celebrate that. The beautiful tension and all that is our, our budget has stayed the same in terms of our giving has not increased, even though our numbers have doubled in two years, which we get it, right? If you're new to church, no obligation to give. And so that does mean those of us who are part of this church, have been doing more than normal to help keep our budget going. We're in a bit of a deficit as we move into the fall. And so we're asking if you support the ministry of Three Crosses to consider giving a gift to the general fund, or even better yet, if you've never given before, make this the time that you start giving a, a reoccurring gift of any amount, or step into this biblical practice of tithing, giving the first 10% of your income for the first time. Because coming into this season, part of the conviction that I had was what God has commissioned us to do is not just raise more funds to support the ministry, but raise up and develop and disciple the next generation of generous people and givers in the midst of our ministry. So if that's you, come on and join us. We'd love to have you be part of that. All right. Are you ready to start with something a little controversial? Yes. All right, let's explore God together. This is April 8th, 1966. If you were alive, don't raise your hand, but you can. Right? April 8th, <laughs> 1966. Does anyone remember the cover of Time magazine on April 8th, 1966? We'll put it on the screen. The big question, three words, is God dead? No. You guys can go home. Robbie solved it. You just gave away my big giveaway. I was going to tell him that at the end. He's not. He's not. It's great news. This is a, an article that, that shocked the American public and actually was translated into languages around the world. It, it was not making a claim about Good Friday that Jesus was dead and not waking up. It wasn't making any theological assertions, but actually a scientific one. What the article was putting forth, if you haven't read it, you can actually go Google it and read it. I read it this last week. It's, a, it's actually a, stood up the test of time. Uh, what the article claims is that as scientific advancements continue to make progress, in the age of space exploration, looking back at 2,000 years of discovery and what we've learned, we've finally come to a place where a God concept is no longer necessary. Yeah, I gotta tell you ahead of time, I disagree. Um, but this is why this article was so controversial. And they, they had a lot of points. They said, you know what, let's look back at astronomy. Let's look at Copernicus and Galileo. Right before these guys, we used the Bible as a science textbook, and we said, well, I guess the earth is the center of the universe. Science has proved they were wrong. Let's move forward. They said, let's look at the last 200 years, the great experiment called America. Right? We learned in this process that we don't need God to ordain a government. A government can be set up by the people to be for the people. Right? Supply and demand through capitalism can broker our economic system. We don't need the church for that. By looking at what humans have done, we can create our own ethics. We understand enough. God got us to this point, maybe. But I think it's time that we can leave him behind and we can step forward into a new era where science can answer the questions that faith we used to rely on to answer for ourselves. Even if you weren't alive in 1966, you can probably picture why people didn't love the article, right? It made everybody angry, not just the religious people. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But it's interesting, it was 60 years ago. It's interesting how much that question still holds in our society. 
And it's funny, right after the article in Time Magazine, if you download it, you can kind of see a screenshot of it. There was an, there was an advertisement for a, an electronic computerized typewriter and actually made in San Leandro, California, right? And so way to go, East Bay. That's still our mission field. And it's so funny to read this article that feels like it could have been written last April and then see this picture of technology. And science has emerged, technology has emerged so much in the last 60 years or so, and yet the question remains the same. Is, is faith necessary in the era of science? Now, three years ago, there was a Stanford professor of anthropology, uh, not, I know, as far as I know, a believing woman or a faith-filled woman of, of any sort, but, but she went to go tackle this question because what she noticed and what everyone notices is that when you do the studies, people of faith always live longer, healthier lives than people without a faith, right? I know there are Christians who die young and there are unbelievers who live a long time, but statistically, if you want to live long and be healthy, you should be a faith-filled person. And so this anthropologist says, why is that? Shouldn't we be able to use science to figure out why faith seems to matter? Right? She says, okay, we, we know that believing in an invisible other some, does something to you, but what does it do to you? How can we replicate that with, with maybe non-religious means? Right in the same way, she said prayer functions in the same way that we've discovered cognitive behavioral therapy functions. And so being a praying person is like going to a cognitive behavioral therapist all the time. It's good for you. And if we could discover how all the aspects of faith are good for you at a scientific level, maybe we can create a world where you don't need faith to live a longer and healthier life. Right? The same argument, right? as science increases, the need for faith decreases, and faith becomes, at some point, irrelevant. 1966, was that the point of irrelevancy? 2020, when this book came out from Stanford, was that the point of irrelevancy? Is it a few years down the road, right? Will someday make science, will science make faith irrelevant? And I've already told you my answer. I think the answer is no. I'm pretty sure. Um, because as I look at the scriptures, I look at my life, I look at human history, and I even look at the arguments from the scientific community what I see is that there will never be a day where science completely eclipses faith altogether. And so what I want to do today is kind of walk through that. To, if you are a believing person, a faith-filled person, to equip you to know what is the role of science in a, a world of a person of faith. If you're someone who's exploring God and you're wrestling with this, I'm hoping I can give an answer that maybe some of the stuff I say, you're just going to hand wave and say, that's because you're a Christian. But other things I say, maybe you haven't thought about before. And maybe you need to be equipped to go have a conversation with someone down the street or at Thanksgiving when the series is over about the connection and, and overlap between science and faith. Because I, I would guess in a room like this, some of us don't want to talk about this at all because we're scared it will shatter our faith. Some of us are ready to fight because we've already wrestled through some of this. And, and some of us just kind of want to hide and pretend like this question doesn't exist. And so for the next few minutes, this question will exist and we're going to address it from a number of angles. And I want to start, if you're taking notes today, with a, a fundamental assertion that will help us to, to wrestle with the how question about science and faith and their compatibility. You can write this down if you're taking notes. This is a bold claim, but I believe that science and faith are not incompatible. Science and faith are not incompatible. If you don't have the notes in front of you and you're just taking notes and you're like, Danny, that's too many words, write it this way. Science and faith are Compatible. They are compatible, which what I mean by that is that you can believe both at the same time. 
Here's my, my story for those of you who prefer stories, then I'll tell you the science for those of you who prefer science. My story is this. A few weeks ago, I had an opportunity to go backpack in the backcountry of Yosemite. If you've ever been out in the middle of the wilderness with no lights, no people, just bears, right? It's a little bit scary, but it's breathtaking because as the fire went down and we started to transition towards bed, we all paused and took a moment to, to look at the heavens, at the night sky. And as I looked up and tried to soak in, it was right at the end of a meteor shower, and so we see these like shooting stars. It was breathtaking. You see the Milky Way galaxy. We had like the Big Dipper right there. There was no moon. It was gorgeous. And as I stood there as a person of faith, as a person of faith, the first thing that popped into my mind were the words of the psalmist in Psalm chapter 8, where he said, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers the moon and the stars that you've set in place. And as I stood there as a person of faith, I found myself marveling at, marveling at the gravity, the immensity, the, the infinite nature of the God who hung the stars. Maybe you've had that experience. But it was a long night. And I stood there for more than just a few minutes. And I started to think about more than just Psalm 8. And as I stood there as a person of faith, but also a, a person of science, I started to imagine what was happening in the heavens above me. These airplanes flying up, the satellites shooting above them, the meteors coming across, right? Just even the way that the earth and its atmosphere works so that these meteors skim off the top and don't destroy us every time, but enough UV light comes in to sustain light on this planet. I'm thinking about farther out, how far are these stars away? How many of these stars have solar systems of their own? How many galaxies are beyond this Milky Bay galaxy that we cannot see? How immense is space? Is it expanding? What do we know about these things? And I'm marveling in a different dimension, not merely at the handiwork of God, but I'm thinking, wow, what science has discovered so far about the immensity of space draws me to a similar place of, of awe. So I stand there marveling as a faith-filled person, and I stand there marveling as a person of science, and at no point in the midst of my marveling did I feel like I was being a hypocrite. That I think, well, hold, hold on, hold on. You can't believe both of those at the same time because for me, science and faith are not incompatible. Right? They're both. And there's a chance that you hear that and you're like, yeah, that's me. Okay, check, let's move on. Or there's a chance if you're exploring God, you're like, eh, that doesn't work, right? Because there are some aspects of, of what the scientific community believes that, that you might think, okay, well, that, that clashes what, what the faith community believes. Yeah, you can believe that space is big and God is real, but you can't believe some of these things at the same time. This is what makes them incompatible. You might say you can't believe that a, a hot big bang created all matter in this universe and believe that God created all these matter in this universe. You can't believe both of these things at the same time. They're mutually exclusive. They're not Compatible, right? And this is, if you're a believing person, this is one of those things that might kind of take you for a tailspin too. Like, okay, we have to, at the end of the day, decide which one was it? Who created the universe? Or what created the universe? Was it God? Or, or was it this moment in time, this hot big bang? And so if you're on the science side of things, I'd love to geek out a little bit on the big bang for a moment. You know, hundreds of years ago, Right, Galileo, Copernicus, before those guys, for most of human history, especially in the Western world, 
People kind of looked at the night sky like I did with a Bible in one hand and their eyeballs, not in their hand, but um, gazing. And they try to make sense of the place, right? Okay, what, what do we see? We see that the sun is revolving around the earth. We see the moon is revolving around the earth. We see that the stars somehow are revolving around the earth. Okay, it seems that the universe is pretty big and the earth is in the center of it. And, and we read the scriptures and that makes sense, right? And so there's this argument for, for most of Western history that, that the earth is the center of the universe. And the Bible says so. And then Galileo, who was a faith-filled person, discovers with Copernicus and the, the scientific community, well, actually, no, what we know today to be true is true. The earth is not the center of the universe. The earth revolves and revolves around the sun. And here's how solar systems were. And the faith community started freaking out a little bit, a lot of it, because of it. Right, there's all these urban legends that he was, like, excommunicated and burned at the stake for these things. That those are not true. But, but he did, like the Time Magazine article, cause a lot of confusion and chaos and anger because it felt like to us, wait, that's not what we learn in the, in the Bible. And he's like, well, that's, but look, look, look through my telescope. We can see more now. Science has helped us to explore more now. Let me fast forward a few hundred years, the beginning of the 20th century. The scientific community generally believed, and there was a couple competing theories at that time, but generally believed in something called the steady state theory, which is that the universe has always existed. Right, infinity past, infinity future, right, maybe someday it'll implode, but has always existed. It's, it's there all time and space and matter has been this continual, like, in one hand, homeostasis, but matter has slowly been created throughout time in this steady state. The universe is a very stable environment, and we happen to live at this point in the midst of it. And then Einstein and a few others started poking around theory of relativity and speed of light and these different types of things. And, and they said, you know what? I, I just want to theorize that, that maybe the universe hasn't always been around. Maybe there was a moment of its inception. Right? And the scientific community is like, well, no, I don't know, right? People started a Time Magazine style freak out a little bit and say, if this was true, you're going to find radiation from the Big Bang floating in space. You're going to find that light is moving away from us. And, and then they started finding all of these proofs that, that what it seems to be true is that the universe has not been in a steady state forever, but at some point in time that they pinpoint, what, 13.8 billion years ago, there was nothing no time, no space, no matter, nothing. And then in a moment of time, like in a millisecond of a millisecond of a, I could talk all day, millisecond, 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 rapid expansion, then a hot big bang, and all things were created in one instant in a moment. And as they started to prove this theorem through the empirical evidence and research and data, all, all of the scientists who had been poking fun at faith not all of them, but some of them started getting a little nervous, right, in, in expressing that. There's a lot of fun quotes you can read if you read these books that are on your outline today. Because what Einstein and these other folks had discovered sounds a lot like what Paul says 2,000 years ago in Colossians chapter 1 that describes God as this unmoved mover, which is a term from philosophy before the time of Christ, God is this unmoved mover, someone who does not apply to the second law of thermodynamics, who causes all things, who has existed for eternity since the past, of etern since eternity past, without space, time, and matter. And then in a moment, this God, out of his own goodness of his heart and desire for the universe, spoke all things to in existence in one moment. Right, Paul says in Colossians, for by him, or for, for in him all things have been created, things in heaven and things on earth, 
visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. It's funny, you look, think about all the theology of the Christian church and how we wrestle with Jesus. Was he a created being? No. Jesus has existed, we say, since eternity, all time and eternity, coexistent with the Father and the Spirit. Right? We believe in this God who has existed forever, eternally, outside of space, time, and matter. And then science says, yes, but then in one moment, all space, time, and matter were created instantaneously. instantaneously. And, and the current edge of science is, is we don't really know how, right? It does violate the second law of thermodynamics to create something out of nothing, and yet matter is created out of nothing in any scientific theory that we create of the origin of, of life or even matter. And, and the faith community says, yes, we believe this the whole time, that God spoke and all things were created in an instant at the word of his mouth. Right? We've approached Genesis chapter 1 where... We see this, this story of an earth that's formless and void. Matter already exists when we get to the first page of the Bible, and God does a similar thing just on our planet and forms this habitable environment for human life. We say, yes, the, at the edge of science where you don't know how this stuff started, God did this. He is the one who has existed before eternity began. There's a an astronomer named Robert Jastrow, uh, who is not a, a believing person, he's an agnostic, and he says that in his book. His book is called God and Astronomers. And he wrestles because he's trying to figure out what is a way that we can understand how the science of the hot Big Bang works as we look at the heavens and we understand the nature of existence. And Jastrow comes to this place where he says, honestly, I'm not a believing person, but the only logical, tenable explanation is that some being spoke forth everything into all existence. Right, he says it this way, uh, and I love this, maybe I shouldn't love this, but he says, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He's scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak as he pulls himself over the final rock. He is greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> And, and this was the wrestling match in the scientific community in the 1920s to the 1950s. Is, is this Big Bang thing can't be true because then it makes all these theological people right. right? Steady state theory of existence doesn't really merge with what we see in the scriptures. Big Bang does. Because right? you look at the Bible and you don't get to see how the universe was created, but you get to see who by the, was the universe was created. You see, this God who with a word spoke the heavens into place, scattered stars, gave the earth its frame. And so when I say science and faith are not incompatible, I don't merely mean that I can like lay on the dirt in Yosemite backcountry and be a Christian and a physicist at the same time or something. What I mean is that they do have distinct roles, overlapping roles at times, but distinct roles in understanding life here on our planet. And so if you're taking notes, the, the next thing I'll have you write down is the role of science as a person of faith is this, that science helps us to understand the complexities of the universe that God created. Science helps us understand the complexities of the universe that God created. Right, there are some things that faith can do in understanding creation, but it, it doesn't assume to do everything. And there are some things that science can do, and, and I think we need to get to a point where we realize that science can't do 
everything. It can't do everything. It can do what it's supposed to do, but it can't do everything. It's so funny, too. I, I'm trying to read theories on what people who are not faith-filled people believe around how all matter was created in the universe, and no one really knows. Right? There's multiverse theory, which we see in Marvel. Uh, that's that maybe there's billions and billions of universes because we need that much time to, to make the Big Bang revolution work because we need more time, so we need infinite universes. And, and that's all at the theoretical level. No one has found any shred of evidence to prove that multiverse theory is correct, as cool as it sounds. Right? And then we got like the Elon Musks of the world saying we're living in a simulation or an alien species has planted life on our planet, which is so funny. It's like you can make fun of us for believing some God created everything, but you can believe that an alien just like deposited us, right? Which is not the same thing, but fundamentally those are all the same thing. Was it an intelligent life form, an alien or a, an environment with computerized simulations we're all in or a God figure that created us all? These are recent scientific theories that people of faith have been believing, I think, a lot more rationally for thousands of years. But we see that in many of these things, it's not faith or science, it's both. Right, are stars giant balls of gas? Or are they God's handiwork? They're both. Were you knit together in your mother's womb? Were you fearfully and wonderfully made by the sovereign hand of God? Or are you the product of, of rapid cell division and the sperm meeting an egg? Well, you're, you're both. But are you here today because your neighbor invited you or your friend said come to church or because the God of the universe saw fit in his sovereign plan to bring you to this place in this moment? It's both. These things can exist, coexist simultaneously because they're doing different things. Some of you are like, amen, let's get out of here. <laughs> and, and some of you are thinking, great talk, Dan. That's what you call me when you're a cynic. Uh, but <laughs> you haven't even addressed the question that you yourself brought up at the beginning, right? You didn't ask, are faith and science compatible? You asked, is faith still necessary in the era of science? And you're right. That lays the groundwork, but the question remains, is faith still necessary in the era of science? And this is what the Time Magazine article was, was arguing. This is why it made both sides mad. Because by saying that God was dead, they were saying he used to be alive, which made all the scientists mad, if you paint with a broad brush. And by saying that he's dead, you make all the faith-filled people mad who think he's still alive, right? And so it was asserting that, yes, God used to be necessary, but now he's not. And the argument is that as science increases, our need for faith decreases. And as I wrestled with this question, one of the things that struck me is, is that's a little bit true even in our own lives as faith-filled people. I just want you to imagine with me, this is not a fun imagination, but imagine with me that, that you were at the doctor because something was going on and the doctor gave you a, a scary diagnosis, right? terminal disease, a life-threatening illness. As a faith-filled person, chances are you, you would just be broken and think, okay, I gotta pray right now. Right? You leave the office, you text your friends, please pray for me, right? Or please pray for my loved one. They just got this news. The prayer chains would start lighting up because we need a miracle, we need God to intervene. And then you get a call from your doctor who says, hey, we did the biopsy and let me give you the good news. This is treatable and so here's your treatment plan and I believe that if you walk through it, you'll be fine. And you keep praying but you know, and I know, that at that moment, you're like, okay, my prayers are going to be a little less desperate now. Because as the role of science in your life increases, the need for God to intervene in a miraculous way decreases. 
And if you've been in a season like that where you start getting better and, and things are working and it seems like you're going to be okay, you start to notice, maybe you're guilty about it, but you start to notice that as the treatment plan is working, you're sending out less prayer updates. You're, you're relying, you're hitting your knees and crying on the floor in your bedroom less. And it's not because you'd say, I don't need God anymore, but now you're functionally living as if medicine's got it. God, thanks, thanks for the help. I think I'm good. And then you get a call from the doctor. Your latest scan is not good. Honestly, it seems like the cancer has become not receptive to the treatment plans. We're out of treatment options. We're going to give you a timeline. We're going to move you to palliative care. There's nothing more we can do. You pick up your phone and you start praying again because science is getting quieter. God's got to get louder. And you might even find yourself saying to one of your friends, hey, at this point, all we can do is what? Pray. Pray. Now that science can't help, maybe God can help again. And that's a little bit reductionistic, but that is the experience that we have on this planet is that as science solves our problems, faith is less necessary. And as science cannot, then faith becomes more necessary. And so the question that Time Magazine posts is actually a pretty logical question. Will we get to the place in scientific progress that faith is no longer necessary at all? And in fact, are we there right now? Is faith still necessary in the era of science? An interesting anecdote about, or observation on the story that I just told, that story could have taken place in 1966 with diagnosis and cancer. It could have taken place yesterday, right? It's a, it's a timeless story. And so I, I do want to point out that at this point today, we still have stories that require a lot of faith. I would point out that if you look at that story as a proof that faith may someday be obsolete, you need to get in that same argument to a place where you believe that faith will become obsolete when science has eradicated all disease, all sickness, and death itself, because only then will we have no more need for a miracle. You'd have to admit that miracles don't happen, and we've all, if you've been part of our church for a while, we've seen miracles happen in our midst. There's a lot of things you have to believe and assume to believe that illustration will someday get us to the point that faith is absolutely irrelevant. And yet I don't even want to answer that from that angle. As I was thinking about how I would answer that question for myself, I kept coming back to the words of Psalm 8, where we started, where we look into the heavens, the work of God's fingers, the moon and the stars that he set in place. And then the three next words out of the psalmist's mouth are these words, what is man? What is man? What is mankind that you're mindful of them, human beings that you care for them. He says, but you have made them a little lower than God and you crown them with glory and majesty. What is man? I think science can make life on this planet easier. I think it can eradicate disease in a lot of ways and, and yet even if it could completely kill all sickness and even death, there are still some questions that science can't begin to answer. What is the purpose of life? And if we are just a bag of carbon, right, or a brain on a stick, what are we here for? Right, how do we live ethically if we're just the current apex predatory species here on planet Earth? If we are an invasive species, if we're a weed, what does that mean for the value of human life and how we treat one another? How would you treat your neighbors, and why would it be any different than a lion treats his lion neighbor if we're just animals here? 
Science can teach us how we work. Science might even be able to delay your deathbed. But science will never give you the words to share with your loved one when they're on theirs. There are some things that science can do. And faith does not say that it can do. But there are some things that faith can do that science cannot do. And I think that's one of the reasons that when we look at at scientists throughout the world, we don't see a, a community of atheists who've walked away from the faith. Actually, many, many scientists are faith-filled people. I love this quote from Albert Einstein, who helped discover the Big Bang. He says, everyone who's seriously committed to the cultivation of science becomes convinced that in all the laws of the universe is manifest a spirit vastly superior to man and and to which we with our powers must feel humble. There's something out there, Einstein says, that's bigger, and we are nothing in comparison with whatever that spirit is. There are some things that science can do, and yet there are some things that faith can do. Seriously, if you look at, Pat Gelsinger talked about this, you look at Nobel Prize winners, you would expect that most of them are atheistic, but actually only a small percent, like five to six percent of all Nobel Prize winners are atheists. The rest of them are people of faith. The only category of Nobel Prize that has a significant percentage of atheists is in none of the sciences. It's in literature. 35% of literature Nobel Nobel Prize winners are atheists, right? So is faith still necessary in the area of literature? I don't know. I don't know. But here we are. Faith in the era of science. Let me give you three things, and and we'll close with this, of how we can lean into this topic as we go from here. Number one, I just want to challenge you, as it comes to faith and science, not to be afraid of either. Don't be afraid of either. Dive into your faith with all your heart and explore how God created the universe. You're safe to do that. I have a good friend whose daughter is a molecular and cell biology major at UCLA, and and she went off and went into her classes, and he's like, I don't know if this is going to shatter her faith. And after her first, like, section of labs and lectures, she calls her dad. She's like, Dad, you can't believe what they're teaching me at UCLA. He's like, I bet I can believe what they're teaching at UCLA. She said, Dad, I'm finding out how God did this, and it's breathtaking. Right? That's the same thing, right? This science is the study of how God created, so don't be afraid of either. Second challenge for you all is to actively wrestle with this tension. Actively wrestle with this tension. Right? You might be like, I don't know if I believe what Danny said about the Big Bang. What, what about Genesis 1? What about seven-day creation? What about the age of the earth? There's a lot of big questions left untapped. Actively wrestle with these tensions. This is why we put the books on your outline. Geisler and Turek's book is great on the, the science, cosmological, ontological type arguments. Uh, check that one out this week. The, the second book on the outline, which I forget the title of that one off the top of my head, but that's going to be helpful for several of the weeks here. But start plugging through the literature. Actively wrestle with this tension. I admit, I didn't know what I was going to do with this when I came to this sermon because I don't normally preach on stuff like this. And as I read these books, my mind was like blowing the whole time. Like, I did not know any of this. So actively wrestle with the tensions as I do myself as well. And finally, and we'll close with this, be assured that there will never be a day when faith will be irrelevant. There will never be a day when faith will be irrelevant. If you think the science is going to eradicate your need for faith, live a little bit. You'll see there will never be a day when faith will be irrelevant. They can live together in unison. 
Right? In fact, 1966, if you were alive in the late 1960s, you know that as God died, I'm making quotes if you're not looking at me, as God died, a lot of stuff swept in to try to fill the void. Right? We have drug culture, free love culture. We've got all of these things just trying to fill the void in the human heart that God used to fill. And over the end of the 1960s, the beginning of the 1970s, there, there started to become a revival of faith where God started to fill the vacuum again. In fact, five years later, after the God is Dead Time magazine cover was, you might have seen it, the Jesus Revolution cover. Wrestling with the opposite side of the tension. What is happening in California where all these hippies are coming to Christ, right? That's a fantastic movie if you want to see a movie there as well. I love, my favorite irony in this whole thing was that the Time magazine cover that God might be dead came out on Good Friday of 1966. Because if we've learned nothing in the 2,000 years of Christian history, uh, we've learned that if God does die, just wait because he's coming back. He's coming back. Let me pray for us and we'll move back into worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for the minds that you've given us and we pray that you would help us to steward them well. Let people from our faith community and these churches around the bay that are going through this study this, these next few months, let, let us become on the cutting edge leaders of science and physics and astronomy and psychology and even literature. Let us be people who discover how you've wired us and let us be maybe the only people in the world who can see the fullness of life as it was designed to be lived. We pray for philosophers in this room and scientists in this room and writers in this room and scholars in this room and students in this room and even us who just are just reading this stuff for fun in this room that, that as we lean into you, you would open our mind more and more to your gravity, your immensity, your infinite nature. And as we lean into science, that would open our mind to be in awe of you. I think of Patty, Patty's words as we wrestled through these passages together. She said, I would hate to ever watch a sunset or eat, an, eat a steak like an atheist. Let us find awe and beauty and splendor in all that we do because we are not a product of random chance but we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Let us lean into you and find life and find hope. And for anyone who's wrestling and exploring you, we pray this next season would be one for them where they seek you and find you when they seek you with all their heart. Let them find you at the end of science. Let them find, find you at the end of this aisle. Let them find you in the prayer room. Let them find you in their closet. Let them find you in a conversation with a friend or in your word. Because though you created all things and you exist from eternity past, you are not far from each of us. You have appointed the times and places where each of us should live. Let us be a church that is committed to finding you in every moment of every day. And let the world look at us and figure out that the reason that we live longer, healthier lives is because of you in us, not because of anything we do. We pray that you continue to grow us as we lean into you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.